So the passage that <clears throat> Enrico read to us is a familiar Christmas passage. Um, it seems like because we were away um, for the first part of December, Christmas only started well into the month. And, and so as I was considering what to preach on, I thought, I, it's too soon for Christmas to have passed. And so I chose this, fa this, this passage. In fact, as a child, <clears throat> when we set up <clears throat> our nativity crash, we always had an old Bible that belonged, if, I, if I'm correct, to my mom when she was a little girl. And it was opened to this passage from Isaiah chapter 9. Someone had shaded in um, these verses with a pale red uh, pencil crayon. And so often had this Bible been used for this purpose that if you opened the Bible, um, it would open to Isaiah chapter 9. And if I must be honest with you, this has been a Bible passage that has puzzled me a little bit over the years. Without a doubt, it is a messianic prophecy, and specifically a prophecy pointing to the incarnation of Christ, his first coming. In verse 1, we see reference to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were the regions of Upper and Lower Galilee, where Jesus grew up and where the disciples were chosen, and much of his ministry took place. Also mentioned is the Sea of Galilee and the far side of the Jordan where Jesus fed the 5,000. <clears> Verse 2 speaks about those walking in darkness who will see a great light. As a boy, I thought this was a reference uh, to the star or possibly the multitude of angels that announced Messiah's birth to the shepherds. But almost certainly that is a rather simplistic interpretation, and we may reasonably read an allegorical interpretation into this verse and link it to Christ's claim in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ah, oh, did we see people walking in darkness as we traveled um, in Southeast Asia? How much they need this light of Christ. Verse 4 is where the passage seems to begin to unravel for me. Gideon's crushing victory over the Midianites is invoked as a picture of the liberation that was to follow. And when Jesus came, if ever the Jews needed a liberator, it was then. For certainly the yoke, the rod, and the staff of the oppressor weighed heavily on their shoulders. Is it any wonder that the disciples were looking for such a liberator that would bring them peace? As they shouted Hosanna, as, they entered as uh, Christ entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, I would imagine that some had this Isaiah passage in mind. Finally, the boot of the soldier and his blood-soaked garments would be used for fuel for the fire as hostilities would come to an end. The enemy vanquished. But it didn't turn out like that. The great victor, one short week later, was instead nailed to a cruel Roman cross. There was no sign of his government. Where was the Prince of Peace? 
And perhaps this morning, as you pack away Christmas cards proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and face a new year, you too are asking the question, where is the peace? What are we to understand by the word peace when we read it in Scripture? I wonder what comes to your mind as you ponder this word. Perhaps a dictionary-style definition comes to mind. Freedom from disturbance. Quiet. Tranquility. Sure, as you listen to Chris playing his piano there, um, feelings of peace were invoked in you. Or perhaps you think of peace in terms of the absence or cessation of war or violence. Perhaps your answer is, I can tell you more accurately what peace isn't. Try my life. Surely as you read the news headlines or watch the six o'clock news on television, there is a deep yearning in your heart for peace. Is that not why they put their offerings at the spirit houses? They desire peace. You've probably said out aloud, why can't people just get along? And maybe the people you are speaking about live in your home or are a part of your family or face you with their aggressive behavior at work. This morning I want to take a closer look at the subject of peace from a biblical perspective and examine this topic in an expository fashion. I'll be drawing extensively on a word study carried out by the Bible Project as part of their Advent series. By the way, speaking about the Bible Project and following in the example of Pastor Chris, I would like to share with you a study resource that I have come to enjoy and value. It's the Read Scripture phone app uh, from the Bible Project. The details are up there on the screen. And it provides a systematic way of reading through the Bible, similar to the one that, that, um, that Jerry um, uses. And what I particularly like is that at the start of each book, there is a narrated, illustrated commentary of the book. This is just extremely well done. And um, let me encourage you to jot down that, uh, that reference and um, go and watch it with your kids as well. It's, it's quite engaging. Even if you don't use it as your Bible reading app, but want to get an overview of a book of the Bible or, or even some subject in the Bible, um, do yourself a favor and first see how the Bible project has summed it up. Check it out. You'll find yourself returning to it over and again. Now let's get back to the topic for today. The word peace is found in almost all languages. One thing that we learned from our missionaries as we visited them last month is that this is not, this is not true of all words. For example, for the Buddhist in Cambodia, there is no word for sin. They only understand and have a word for a mistake or something that brings negative karma. But the idea of offending an eternal God, there's no word that describes that. And so our missionaries have to work at 
at providing a context and, and um, describing this concept without there being a word that refers to it. But they do understand the word santipiyap. It means peace. I don't know if I did that okay, uh, Barbara. Um, did I get that <laughs> kind of okay? Santipayap, there we go. In Thailand, they would use the word kwang singop. Both of these words mean peace. In the Bible, peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something that is better in its place. This is a key point to understand this Isaiah passage. Peace points to the presence of something better. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom. In the New Testament, the Greek word is eirena. And the girl's name Irene comes from this word. If we were Hebrew scholars, we would know that the most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. That's a little different from our understanding of peace, which tends to more focus on the absence of, com of conflict. And so let's dig a little further to broaden our understanding and apply this to Isaiah's passage and his messianic prophecy. Shalom could refer to a stone wall that has no gaps or missing bricks. Here we begin to get the idea that harmony has more of a part in the meaning of this word. We could say that shalom refers to something that is complex, with lots of pieces, that is in a state of completeness, wholeness. Eliphaz as he offers his counsel to Job, says in Job chapter 5, verse 24, Job's tents will be in a state of wholeness, a state of shalom, because he will visit his abode and find nothing amiss, nothing lost, nothing out of place. Shalom can also apply to a person's well-being. When David visits his brothers as they are camped against the Philistines, he asks about their shalom. And this would be a peculiar question to ask soldiers in the midst of conflict with a ruthless enemy. If it did not mean more than just the absence of conflict, he was asking them, in effect, what was the state of their soul, their well-being? Meet a Jew on his Sabbath, and he is likely to say to you, Shabbat shalom. In doing so, he is wishing you, at least on this Sabbath, to experience peace and wholeness. And the orderliness that comes from devoting a day to the, Lord, to the Lord of the Sabbath. For there is a peace or a wholeness that comes from observance of the Sabbath, the day of rest. The idea, of being, the, the idea being that obedience to God and his law brings about peace. We can understand that concept. And so we come to realize that shalom involves much more, that life is complex and, and full of moving parts and relationships and situations, and when any of these are out of alignment, 
in disarray or missing, there is a breakdown of shalom. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. Surely we can all identify situations and even people around us, perhaps we ourselves, where shalom is absent or broken. So what are we to do? We face a new year. It is a good time to take stock and purpose to make some changes in our lives. For us as children of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, these changes are Spirit-inspired and Spirit-empowered. This is not just a matter of making a New Year's resolution. This is a question of sitting down with God in a time of prayer and listening for His Word, for His inspiration, and then depending on Him for His empowerment. Makes me think that if you have trouble in keeping New Year's resolutions, perhaps they have not been put on the right foundation. May we never underestimate the importance of this key aspect of being new creatures with minds transformed and living in a process of ongoing sanctification. One thing that we quickly learn is that this sanctification is more than just Christian jargon. It is a life in action and can be spelled out in verbs. Or as my elementary school teacher described them, doing words, doing words. When you use shalom as a verb, as in to bring shalom, it means to make complete or to restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it in 1 Kings chapter 9. And according to the law in Exodus, if your animal tramples your neighbor's field, then you have an obligation to bring shalom by repaying your neighbor and compensating him for the loss. This is the Holy Spirit applying these concepts to your life where you are today. Certainly the conflict that ensues when someone's property is damaged, either directly or indirectly through you, disturbs peace. And that peace is restored when you compensate them for the loss. And the application when we are dealing with physical goods is easy to follow. But what about when our words have caused damage? Or our actions have broken a relationship. Children of God are to be engaged in restoring peace. How often we are so busy guarding or enforcing our own rights rather than working at doing what we can to make a situation whole and bring about peace. In the book of Proverbs, specifically chapter 16 and verse 7, to heal and reconcile broken relationships is to bring shalom. The kings of Israel were supposed to practice shalom, but really did, and so the prophet Isaiah longs for shalom. And he anticipates a future king 
the Prince of Peace. And His reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with His people and make right all wrongs and heal all that had been broken. It is the future kingdom that is part of the, this is the future kingdom that is part of our hope as believers. And surely God has placed in our hearts a deep longing for such a state of shalom. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament is announced as the arrival of Arena. Remember that Arena is the Greek word for, for peace. But this was much more than a simple cessation of hostilities. This is important in understanding this passage. It had much more to do with the state of the relationship between Creator God, the King of the universe, and mankind. And being true to His perfect attributes of mercy and love, God makes the first move. As Paul explained to the Philippians, Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. That cross was not the end of the story. It was the beginning. Jesus came to offer his peace. He said to his followers, My peace I give to you. John 14, 27. Now that we have a broader understanding of this concept, what is he saying? Jesus describes his relationship between him and his father in John 17. And he wants that same harmony for us. In Romans 5.1, the apostle makes an astounding pronouncement regarding our justification by faith. Write that verse down. Romans 5.1, it's one worth contemplating. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between sinful man and his creator. That's a big deal. This is why the Apostle Paul can say that Jesus himself is our Irena. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. And at one time we were separated from Christ, having no hope, but now he himself is our peace. Now, I say that he is our peace. But understand that Paul is only saying that this is the case for those that are children of God. If you have not confessed your sin and placed your faith in Christ, then you are still at odds with Christ. He is not your peace. But you need not live one more day as an enemy of God. He desires to make you whole. He longs to cover the turmoil and strife that is a consequence of your sin 
with his healing, with his healing blood. He wants to begin his sanctifying work in your life that will lead you away from the destructive life that you now live to one that is at peace with him. He wants to teach you how to live with those around you so that you are at peace with them. He wants to spread his love abroad in your heart so that you learn how to love him and love others with a special kind of love. This love does not regard yourself better than others. In fact, Paul gives a very detailed description of this love in 1 Corinthians 13. We're familiar with it. He wants each of us to be the, the whole, complete, that is, at peace person that we were made to be, but failed to be. His peace he gives as a gift. And you can receive that gift today. It is a gift that will eclipse any gift that you have received. To receive this gift, to be at peace with God, is not a complicated process. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you know what it means when it says that the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, for one, it means that you don't need to wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. But how, you ask? Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means agree with, the, with God that you are a sinner and turn from that sin. Believe in the gospel means realize that you can do nothing about your sin. To try and wash away your sin would be like trying to clean your hands by washing with a filthy rag. He died on the cross for your sin. He took the punishment that you deserve. And then he rose from the dead, showing that sin was not strong enough to overcome his power. And because he has paid the price for your sin, you no longer will have to pay that price. By believing this, you are made whole in the sight of God. You are made at peace with God. And you are at peace with Him. Now, I tried my best to put this in the most straightforward way that I could. But you know what? My words are not going to do it. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps there's some part that you still don't understand. Well, ask someone. Speak to your mom or dad. Ask your Sunday school teacher or one of your pastors or someone that is already at peace with God. Allow the Holy Spirit to make it clear to you. Don't put it off for another day. This could be the first day of a life that can experience the peace of God. Do you see how Isaiah's prophecy is so much more then our concern for an end to turmoil in our world? Peace in our time? What Isaiah was speaking about was peace with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There is no end to the increase of His government, 
Because people like you and me continue to surrender our lives to Him. And when we do, He comes in and takes office as the new government in our lives, where He establishes and upholds His kingdom with justice and righteousness. Can we work against that government? Oh, you bet you can. And if you, if you have, that's the source of the absence of peace in your life. Isaiah ends with verse 7 with a powerful guarantee. He says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I wonder what the word uh, zeal means to you. To me, it speaks of an intense conviction, a committed purpose, a tight-jawed determination that no matter what odds may arise, His will shall be done. For those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans, we get a glimpse of zeal as Gandalf stands on the ledge above the yawning abyss and confronts the Balrog and thunders, You shall not pass! And with an even greater fervor, God Almighty says, My peace I give to you. You shall enter my glory and live for all eternity in my presence. Is that not a blessed message? And the zeal of the Lord shall accomplish this. These are lofty ideas and fill our hearts with joy. But all is not said and done. Now that we are filled with His peace, we, as his followers, are called to create peace. Becoming people of peace means particip participating in the life of Jesus who reconciled all things in heaven and earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. Galatians 1, 19 and 20. Paul instructed the local church to keep their unity through the bond of peace. And this requires humility and patience and bearing with one another in love. And if it applies to the church, it certainly applies in our homes. Is there any reason it should not apply in every area of our lives? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Would I be mangling this text if I turned this around and said, because we are children of God, we will be blessed as peacemakers. Certainly we will quickly recognize that peace takes a lot of work. It is not just the absence of conflict. This, would, this we could achieve by simply backing down. It takes two to make a fight. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness. Whether that's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And the Holy Spirit delights in informing us and empowering us for this work. And directing us in how we may achieve it, achieve it best. So here we stand at the brink of a new year. 
Are you ready to be a peacemaker? One who restores and makes things whole? That is the desire of your heart in this new year. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close out this service and pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth to make peace with me by dying on the cross for me. Forgive me for those times when I have gone back to my old ways that tear down and break up. Help me to look for ways to make situations whole by applying your ways in my life. Show me how to love as you love, to forgive as you forgive, to show mercy and grace as you do. Help me to do the hard stuff that requires humility. Let my life be the fragrance of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.